hear everybody sing, and if you listened, I know you were lifted up too. Now from the Word of God, Luke 24, verses 13 to 27, which was once laid down for all. One time, this is it. This is the uh, same day as Christ's resurrection. So verse 13, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Amos, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was with one redeemed Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels. They said that he was still alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, O slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all scriptures the things concerning himself. Please be seated. I'm very happy to be with you today. Thank you for being with us and and listening to all that beautiful singing. Thank you very much for that and the wonderful leadership and direction we've had. We're grateful for it and for your fine participation in it. Thank you for this time of worship that we have together, worshiping God in spirit and in truth, John 4 and 24, according to the Bible pattern. Very happy to have everyone with us. You're visiting with us. We are happy to have you. hope you'll Stay so that we can shake hands and say hello and become friends. And we encourage you to come back whenever you possibly can. I hope you'll be with us tonight at 6 o'clock. We're involved in our Sunday night seminars on Sunday night. We will be talking about the New Age movement. I've been looking at world religions. And we've been studying a different one each night. And we studied a little bit about the New Age movement last Sunday night. We'll try to follow that up with another lesson on the New Age movement and just see how pernicious it is and, and how we must be very careful to understand it and reject it. But to augment that, I've been studying about Jesus during Sunday morning worship service. And I took the statement from John chapter 3 that Nicodemus made about Jesus. He said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God because nobody could do the things which you've done. 
Nobody can do these signs. Nobody can do the miracles which you've done. We know that you are a teacher come from God. And we've been looking at the true teacher that has come from God as opposed to those false teachers that claim to be divine but are not, but are man-made, and their doctrines are man-made. And to help us with that, we've looked at the way the teacher that has come from God, the true teacher, has taught us. He's taught us by means of sermons. And we looked at two sermons. There are five sermons of Jesus, and we looked at two of them, Sermon on the Mount and the Olivet Discourse. And then in prior lessons, we looked at the conversations that Jesus had with people. And, and he taught us by means of the conversations. Uh, the woman at the well. Why, the very conversation about uh, the new birth with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. All these particular matters. They taught us a lot, the conversations of Jesus. In fact, those conversations are very important for each one of us. One of the things we looked at are, are the conflicts that Jesus had. Jesus faced a lot of conflicts. And through the moments of conflict, he taught us great Bible lessons, lessons from God even though he was facing controversy from scribes and Pharisees. One of my favorite ways that Jesus taught are the parables, and we looked at that. We looked at a number of parables. This is how the teacher that came from God taught us great Bible truths. And I'd like to continue this thought again. How did Jesus teach us? And what are some of the ways and the teaching strategies that Jesus employed to help us understand God's divine will for our lives? And I thought as I went through the pages of the Bible, the questions that Jesus asked. Jesus used the form of a question in a wonderful way to teach us God's will. And if you just look at the questions, some questions that Jesus asked, some questions that Jesus asked other people. If I were to ask you today, what is a question? How would you answer that? How would you define a question? Well, I thought of that, and I looked up this idea. It's a solicitation of information from someone else. But that's a pretty good, simple definition of what a question is. A solicitation of information. And I'm trying to get information from you. That's not the only thing about a question, though. As I began to study the Bible and look through these matters, I see that all sorts of different types of questions. Sometimes it's a rhetorical question. Paul would use that as a literary device to help people understand the truths of God. What? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? It's a rhetorical question. God forbid. Romans chapter 6. He uses a rhetorical question in a powerful way to teach. Well, Jesus did that. How is this teacher who came from God, how did he teach? What teaching strategies did he use to help us? The true teacher that came from God. Well, he used questions. Somebody went through the New Testament and counted all those questions. They came up with 225 questions. I'm glad there are people like that. I'm not that way. I, I don't study the Bible that way, but I do enjoy reading the conclusions of their study. Someone came up with 225 questions in the New Testament. That's a lot of questions. In fact, they said there are 103 of them are questions that people asked Jesus. And so it becomes a very interesting thing with regard to the questions of the New Testament. And as I was reading this from this particular researcher, he said that there are 15 different categories that you can put these questions in. No, I'm not going to preach on each category this morning. But I do want to look at some of the questions of Jesus that will help me 
understand the fact that he is the teacher that has come from God. Nicodemus was right on that point. You are a teacher that has come from God. And I want to understand that. And I want to understand how he taught. And I certainly want to learn from the teaching that Jesus gives in the pages of the New Testament and apply it to my life. There is a qualification we need to consider first before we get into the questions itself. And I could have picked all kinds of questions. I picked several, more than I'll have time to talk about today. But there is a qualification. Jesus, of course, is the only begotten Son of God. Jesus is divine. Jesus always was God. And when he came in the flesh, he was God. And he's gone back to God and is God. There is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Deuteronomy chapter 6 teaches us, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, He is one. But the Hebrew word echad there, which is a, he- a compound word, means that He is a, a unified God, a God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we wrestle at trying to understand that there is one God, and Jesus is God. So shall a man leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. How can two become one? Well, it's a different sense of the word one there. Now two people become one family, one flesh, husband and wife. And it helps me a little bit understand the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Well, God certainly knows everything that can be known. He is omniscient. And that's the word we sometimes use with regard to the knowledge of God. Why, all the knowledge that is past, all the knowledge of the present, and all the knowledge that will be of the future, God contains that and understands that. And surely God has such an understanding of that kind of knowledge. Jesus, the Son of God, knows. He knows all that can be known. He knows everything that could be known. There's nothing there that he does not know, but there is a qualification here. A self-imposed qualification. Because when he became human, and he put himself in human form, he naturally went about a self-imposed limitation with regard to divine qualities. To self-imposed limitation. There in turn, for example, when Jesus walks on the water. Miraculously, he's able to suspend the laws of gravity. Now, he didn't do that throughout the whole earth. He just did that for himself right there. He was God. He could walk on the water. Sometimes he wouldn't do that. Sometimes he'd take the boat or a boat and travel on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We read about him in the pages of the New Testament. Sometimes he would walk on the water. Sometimes he wouldn't. A self-imposed type of limitation with regard to the Son of God. Well, in Matthew chapter 12, you and I studied on our Wednesday night Bible studies about this particular aspect of the life of Jesus, how that Jesus heals this particular man. And he casts out the demon of this particular individual. And the passage that I'm thinking about is Matthew chapter 12, about verse 22 uh, In that instance, then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. Verse 23. 
all the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the Son of God, can he? And when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, verse 25, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. Well, verse 25 said Jesus knew their thoughts. He knew that. Did he always know the thoughts of everybody 24 hours a day? No. But it was a self-imposed type limitation whereby Jesus, to be human, emptied himself, Philippians chapter 2 verse 5, and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. There's a qualification here when it comes to the matter of the divine knowledge of the Son of God. To be human, he would have to have some self-imposed limitation with regard to divine qualities. So sometimes he would know, and sometimes he did not know, because he didn't read the heart of every person every single time, 24 hours out of the day, seven days a week. Let me give you an example of that. In Matthew chapter 8, Matthew chapter 8, about verse 5. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him, and said, Lord, my servant is laying paralyzed at home, fearful and uh, tormented, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come into my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And I said, say to another, come, and he comes. And I say to my slave, do this, and he, he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following him, Truly I say to you, I've not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Jesus was amazed to hear and to understand the man's faith and the level of faith that the man had. There is a self-imposed limitation with the knowledge of Christ to be human. Uh, he didn't always read the hearts and the minds of everyone 24 hours out of the day. Notice Matthew 24 and 36. I think it's a very classic text with regard to the matter of the end of time. The passage says in verse 36, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, not the Son, but the Father alone. He's talking about when the judgment will be. At that point in time, he says, even the Son doesn't know that. A self-imposed limitation with regard to the divine knowledge of the Son of God. I assume he knows now. Being resurrected and raised... Ascended back to the Father and reigning over his kingdom at the right hand of God. I assume he knows. I would have to assume that. I don't know. But I said in, he said in Matthew 25 and 36, I don't know when the time will be. It's a type of self-imposed limitation with regard to that in order to be human. In order to be human. There had to be some kind of self-imposed limitation to be a human being. Well, God is omniscient. Yes, and God knows all that can be known, but the Son of God had some self-imposed limitation in order to be a human being, and thus we have these particular interesting statements about him. Why, in John chapter 11, when Lazarus has passed away, Jesus comes to the family, and he says there in verse 34, Where have you laid him? 
Well, wouldn't he already know that? Where have you laid? It's a question. And I think that I have a fundamental presupposition here that I must understand in order for me to understand the questions of Jesus in the pages of the New Testament and this fundamental presupposition with regard to the matter is that Jesus had some self-imposed limitation in order to be a human being though the miracles we read of him and the divine nature that we read of him in the New Testament is certainly clear and true to what the Bible has to say. But he asked this question, now where have you laid him? Some commentaries will look at this passage and say, well, he asked this question in order to teach a, a lesson, but I don't see any lesson in this. He asks a question, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And so there was some self-imposed limitation upon the knowledge of Jesus. There wasn't any lesson in asking, where have you laid him? Though there'll be times when he does ask questions to help us understand the Word of God. So, with that understanding in mind, and I think it's an important one to understand and come to grips with, with regard to the divine nature of Jesus, I come to our lesson text today in Luke chapter 24. And there's a couple of questions that Jesus asked to teach lessons. And these men are walking to Emmaus. They'd come from Jerusalem. It's in the evening. And as they're walking, they're discussing these particular matters. And while they were talking and discussing, verse 15 says, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. You notice how Luke puts that in the reflexive pronoun, Jesus himself, adding emphasis to the point. It was actually Jesus that came to them and started walking with them. But their eyes, they were prevented from recognizing him. This, of course, would be changed later on, verse 29, when Jesus at the dinner, which they have together, reveals himself to them, verse 31, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. But at this particular point in time in the narrative, he, his identity was concealed. They didn't know it was Jesus. And he said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you are walking? Now, I have an idea that Jesus knew here. I don't think Jesus is asking a question for information here. I think Jesus is asking a question to teach. That's how the teacher came from God handles things sometimes. He asks questions. And when he asks a question, we learn great truths from the question. These particular people here... They're surprised. You must be the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know what's been going on around here. If you could just see the individuals named Cleopas, verse 18. Now, this is the only time we ever read of this man in the Bible. I don't know anything about him other than this. He said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? Verse 19. And he said to them, What things? That's another question. And they said to him, These things of Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, Mighty indeed in word, in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was like he who was going to redeem Israel. We were hoping he'd be a kind of physical Messiah like David was king in the Old Testament. 
really assert his authority over Rome and push off the yoke of Rome so that we could have a physical kind of Messiah. That's sort of what we were hoping. We were hoping for that. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. And then he talks about the fact. We talked to the women. They went to the tomb. They saw that the tomb was empty. That's an irrefutable fact. The empty tomb. We went there and I saw it was just like the way they said it was. And how that they had seen these angels, verse 23 in the matter. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found just exactly as the women also had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory, verse 26? Wasn't it necessary for Jesus to die on the cross, to suffer and die and to be raised from the dead? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scripture. He goes back to the Old Testament. He goes back to the books of Moses and the writings of Moses. Maybe he went back to Genesis. Maybe he went back to Genesis 3 and 15. It doesn't specifically say, but it says he went back to the Old Testament, the Old Testament books of Moses. He no doubt had gone into great prophets of Isaiah and the prophecy of Isaiah 7, Isaiah 53, Isaiah chapter 9, how these great things would take place, how that all this was fulfilled concerning him. Now they get to the place and Jesus was going to go on. They said, no, you stay here and eat with us. Stay here. And so he does. And acting like the host, he parcels out the food, parcels out the bread. And then verse 31 takes place. Their eyes were opened. And they saw him. And he vanished from them. What's the point of the question? Well, I think it's pretty clear by the time we get to verse 17. Jesus asked the question in order to engage their mind. He wants to teach them about the Messiah and have a proper understanding. Verse 18, they're surprised that he doesn't know about these particular events. Keep in mind the fact that he has concealed his identity from them. The questions were posed to them for a purpose. The questions were posed to them to increase their interest and to teach them the truth. And that's what the teacher come from God does sometimes. He asks a question. And these great questions motivate us and teach us to live the godly Christian life. I'll tell you a question Jesus asks. That really has meant a lot to me. It's found for us in Matthew chapter 7. It's in his Sermon on the Mount. The questions really begin around verse 9 of this particular passage. Let me spend a brief moment studying with you this paragraph from 7 through about verse 11. Though the questions themselves are in Matthew 7, 9, and 10. Well, you'll remember the Sermon on the Mount. What a great sermon it was. and Life in the kingdom of God and what it will be like. And how we should be living our lives. And he comes to this point where he starts asking a question. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? That's a question. Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask Him? In the midst of the closing moments of this Sermon on the Mount, He's asking a question. 
The question arises from the standpoint of, let me help you think about this. Now, I think that's where we fall down a lot of times. We don't think. And if we do try to think, we think improperly. And so he said, let me help you think about this. I want, reason about this with me for a minute. you got a father who loves his children. A child comes up to his father. He says, Dad, I'm hungry. And what would the father do? Give him a rock? Now think about that for a minute. And so Jesus is saying, use your reason about you and recognize what would a loving father do. Well, I'm told that the rocks in Palestine look a lot like bread, loaves of bread, the size of them and the shape of them. Why, take a, instead of giving the son bread, which he's hungry, he gives him a rock. That'd be kind of a tricky father, wouldn't it? Here, have this. And it kind of trick him into thinking, well, you've given me a rock instead of the bread. No father who loves his son is going to do that. Let's think about this. Let's reason about this properly. Or here's one who comes to his father, and uh, he asks for a fish to eat. Would he give him a snake or would he give him a serpent? A reasonable explanation would be a loving father is not going to do that for his son. These are questions. Questions designed to help us. And in this question, the teacher come from God has told us, now if you who are evil know to give good gifts to your children, how much more God is going to give good gifts to you? Now when he says that you're evil, he doesn't mean that they're born evil or they're so steeped in sin that they can never get out of the evil, but he means that you're sinners and God is perfect. If you as a sinner know to give good gifts to your children when they come to you and ask of it, God who is perfect in his love, you know what he's going to do. It's an amazing lesson that I learned from the questions from the teacher come from God. He started this series off with three verbs. Here they are, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. And then he goes into the questions, helping us understand the great truths which he's revealed. Ask, seek, and knock. Now the tense of the verbs are helpful in this particular passage. It tells us by repetitive action. Keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. The tense of the verb is saying, keep asking, and keep seeking, and keep knocking. Isn't that interesting word? I did a little research on the word knock there. And as I read in the pages of the New Testament, in the lexical matters that I have uh, before me, there are two words in the Greek language that are used in the New Testament for knock. One word is a word for knock, which means beat the door down. Beat the door down. Another word that's used in the New Testament for knock is to gently rap with the knuckles. Gently rap. That's the word here. You don't have to beat the door down for God to hear you. As a child of God, it takes a gentle rap of the knuckles to pray to God, Lord, I need your help. Lord, forgive me of my sins as I confess them and as I repent of them. Lord, help us in this particular matter. You don't need to beat the door down. You knock. But you keep knocking. And you keep knocking. And he's telling us by means of questions 
if you who are a sinful father love your children so much that you'd give to your children the things that they ask and they need you know God who's perfect in love and without sin will give to his children as they need and as they ask and seek and gently knock by means of prayer and consideration. Well, when I read that, it motivates me to be better. When I read that, it motivates me to love more. When I read that, it motivates me to dedicate my life more than I had before because I know my Heavenly Father loves me and I have this wonderful, intimate relationship with God the Father by means of the new birth that I was baptized into Christ, immersed for the remission of my sins. I've confessed my faith in Him. I've repented of my sins and now I have, because of my obedience to the gospel and God's wonderful grace, I have this wonderful relationship with Him and He loves me and He wants this intimate relationship with me and I ask and I seek and I knock and it motivates me to be a better child of God. Now, if you got another way to say it, then tell me and we'll say it that way. But I like the way Jesus said it. And he said it by means of asking questions. The teacher came from God. And he taught by asking questions. And I'd like to know what's a better way to say that than the way he said it right here in Matthew chapter 7. God loves us. And he cares for us. And that makes me more dedicated. Does it you? Because of how Jesus taught it. He taught it by means of a question. When I thought of the questions of Jesus, the teacher come from God, I naturally thought of a situation that arose in Luke chapter 15. And I'll turn to that and speak to that just for a brief moment especially as it comes to our attention in verse 1 and 2. Luke chapter 15, here Luke is telling us about Jesus and his life. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now let me see if I can clarify this matter just a little bit and see what it's all about. Why is this such a big deal? Well, Luke makes the point very clearly that the tax collectors came, and nobody likes the tax collector. Sometimes they're referred to in the pages of the Bible as the publicans. The Herodians were another branch. They were hated, but the, the, um, the tax collectors, the publicans, that was the lowest, rung, the lowest rung of the social order. They were down there with harlots, prostitutes of the day, tax collectors. We didn't like them. They didn't like the tax collectors. But he also says the sinners. He says, now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him. The sinners, one by and asked, well, aren't we all sinners? Well, indeed we are. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But the sinners that he has here, and again, I think the original helps us in our translation. 
an understanding of the passage, he's talking about egregious sinners. He's not just talking about all men have been guilty of sin. These are the worst of the worst in the culture and the community. And so this is what you've got coming to Jesus. You've got the publicans, those tax collectors that we hate. They're traitors to the Jewish people. They're sellouts. And they're exorbitant in raising the taxes and pocketing the difference that they don't pay to Rome. And then you've got the worst of the worst. And they're coming to Jesus. Now I wonder why. Because they must have seen how Jesus loved them. And they must have seen how Jesus was telling them the truth and how that their lives would be improved and how that they were being given and fed what they needed to hear and needed to learn. And the Pharisees and scribes, they grumbled at that. We don't like the idea of, Pharisees, of these particular people coming. This is, a, this is a bad thing for him to receive these people. And the tense of those verbs is that it was a steady stream of people coming to Jesus, coming to Jesus, the publicans and the sinners, the worst of the worst. So, he told them this parable. It's a question. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? The question. Now, the question is designed to men who know sheep. I don't know anything about that. And just as a side issue, I don't want to learn anything about it either. But they did. They depended upon sheep for clothing. They depended upon sheep for money. It had value to them. Now, here's a man who's got a hundred sheep, and he sees one's missing. What does he do? What would you do? And so now the question is posed in such a way that their minds are engaged on the parable, and they're beginning to think about the point that Jesus is making. Now they're thinking about the issue of the value of the sheep and the importance of the sheep, and one of them is gone. Would he not leave the ninety and nine in the pasture and go find the one that is lost? And when he found the one sheep that was lost, he'd bring it back on his shoulders rejoicing because that which is lost has now been found. And Jesus is giving them the point by means of this question, I am interested in people because people have intrinsic value and every person is important. And there's great joy in heaven when every sinner repents and obeys the gospel of Jesus Christ and becomes a child of God. There's great joy because there's great value in every soul. And how better to teach a lesson than by asking a question, or what woman? Or Satan. If she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. When she's found it, she calls together her friends, neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin which I had lost. Reading out of Luke chapter 15, verse 9. In verse 10, In the same way I tell you that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. He's talking about people here and how valuable they are. And our hearts thrill over the study of this prodigal son. A boy who decided by his own rebellious attitude, ruin his life, and yet come back to the Father. And the Father receive him. My son is gone. 
but now he's back. What father wouldn't rejoice over that? All because of a question. Nobody can teach like Jesus. Jesus could ask the right question at the right time. I can't do that. I, I sometimes I ask the wrong question and sometimes I give the wrong answers and I just can't do that. And no mere man can, only Jesus, a teacher come from God, can ask the right question in the right way at the right time to teach the right lesson that people need. And he did it over and over and over again. Now you compare that with what we study on Sunday night. There's no comparison. Sometimes they'll call it comparative religions. Where they put Christianity right in the same bunch with all these worldly religions. It's not the same. There is no comparison. There is only one religion that has come from God. There is only one teacher that has come from God. Jesus Christ the righteous God in time past, spoken to the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath made heir of all things, by whom also he's created the world. Now's the time to listen to Christ. And what has Christ, the teacher come from God, taught us? Repent of our sins, Luke 13, 3. Confess your faith in Jesus Christ, Romans 10, 32 and 33. And be baptized into Christ that is immersed in water for the remission of sins. Acts chapter 2 verse 38. And become a child of God. A Christian in the biblical sense of the term. Not in any modern day sense of the term. But in the sense of the term whereby we read it from the pages of the Bible. To be added to the church of the Lord. This is the church God wants you to be in. The church you read about from the pages of the New Testament. Not a denominational body but the church that Jesus died for. It belongs to him by right of purchase. And I'm in it today. And many of you are in it today because you've been obedient to the new birth. But if you have not, now's the time to do it and become a child of God by listening to the teacher that has come from God. Won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.